History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello everyone, welcome to the History of Persia, I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 116, In Stranger Lands. Before we get started, I just want to make the announcement that I will be doing another Ask Me Anything Q&A episode for episode 125, or possibly me and a few relevant guests, depending on how things pan out. So, Send in questions. Anything about me, this podcast, podcasting, ancient history, and especially any questions about Alexander and the Achaemenids. You can send those to me through any of the usual methods. My messages are open on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit. And you can go to the contact page on historyofpersiapodcast.com or send an email to historyofpersiapodcast at gmail.com. Any of those will work. Get those in by episode 125. That's about 10 weeks from now. Anyway, for the last few weeks, we've been dealing with religion. First with how Zoroastrians remembered Alexander the Great's conquest of Iran in later antiquity. Then I covered the Avestan Kawis, who were eventually remembered as the Kayanian dynasty, the kings who kind of supplanted the Achaemenids in Iranian memory by the Sassanid period. Then, last time, I covered the history of ancient India, particularly the powerful kingdom of Magadha, leaving off with the expansion of the Nanda Empire and the importance of Buddhism in their territory. That means it's been a while since we covered narrative events. We left off with Alexander the Great executing Bessus and claiming control of Bactria and Sogdiana, bringing an end to the Achaemenid Persians once and for all, and ushering in the Agiad Macedonian Empire. You'd think that would be the end of it, but no. For one thing, Alexander just was an inherently restless and warlike soul. But more importantly, empires do not die overnight. The official transfer of power to Alexander was just that, official. Of course, most of the empire had been forcefully subjugated, and we've been hearing about on-and-off revolts and insurgent campaigns behind the Macedonian front line for ages. But none of that has happened in the Northeast. Yet. So brass tacks, where are we now? The year is 329 BCE. Alexander is the uncontested ruler of the empire, the lord of all Asia, and the Agiad army an increasingly diverse agglomeration of West Asians, Greeks, Thracians, and Macedonians is in the fortress town of Notaka, on the border between Bactria and Sogdiana. There they were hosted by Spitamenes, apparently a Sogdian who until just moments before the story resumes, 
had been acting as the Achaemenid High Park of Sogdia. He was assisted by his lieutenant, Dataphernes, and Oxyartes, another Sogdian leader, evidently some sort of local chieftain who gained prominence and respect under Achaemenid rule. For a moment, we will also have to dispense with Plutarch and Diodorus as useful sources, dwindling the detailed options down to just Arian and Curtius. Plutarch, for some reason, inserts the campaign through central Iran after Bessus's execution, contradicting literally every other source, including the ones that he explicitly cites. Diodorus just plain skips over the next phase of the action and goes straight to India. Alexander lavished the men responsible for apprehending Bessus with gifts as a reward for their service to the Macedonian Empire. And he tasked Oxothres, the late Darius III's brother, with transporting the usurper back to Bactria for his crucifixion. But there ain't no rest for the accursed, and even as Alex was claiming uncontested authority, a group of Macedonian scouts were ambushed. They had been sent to the Sogdian countryside to forage for supplies and get a lay of the land, which apparently irritated the Sogdians, who, to be fair, could not possibly have known that the war was over yet. In the 4th century BCE, and frankly, well into the early Middle Ages, Sogdia was the frontier of settled society in Central Asia. Rural Sogdians were, for all intents and purposes, mounted steppe nomads just like the Saka. Even their name, Sugd in their own language, was probably just the local variant of Saka. They killed some of the Macedonian scouts and took the rest hostage. The few that escaped got back to Alexander, who exhibited his characteristic restraint, which is to say he rode out to their hill fort and besieged them with an advanced force of Macedonians, with the king fighting in the front line where he took an arrow in the knee. Upon seeing Alexander being pulled off the battlefield, these Sogdians dispatched emissaries to negotiate a peaceful surrender. Alexander made a show of it, undoing the bandage on his leg to display the wound to the messengers. The Sogdians, apparently realizing they had unintentionally rebelled against their new sovereign, apologized profusely and claimed that nobody was more saddened by the injury than they were themselves. Frankly, that might have been true. When this started, they thought they were fighting an invader, and now they had wounded their own king and were facing the expected punishment for that. Alexander was surprisingly understanding, accepting their surrender on the condition that they return the hostages, of course, and turn over the archer that had fired the offending arrow, which they did. This had the side effect that Alexander couldn't ride a horse or march on foot for a few weeks, meaning he continued his campaign from an open litter, compromising between the customary Persian and Mesopotamian method of carrying royalty on an enclosed platform and Macedonian disdain for that particular practice. Of course, that didn't mean anything to the large number of Macedonians who already hated any time that Alexander adopted aspects of local culture. The stress and tension of five-plus years on campaign and being so far from home erupted in an unexpected way. Macedonian infantry and cavalry soldiers violently brawled with one another over the right to carry the litter. The cavalry claimed the honor by virtue of being the royal companions, and the infantry did it because it was their duty to carry wounded comrades. Alexander, you have to assume visibly frustrated, just ordered them to take turns. With Sogdia apparently settled business, Alexander decided to move to the nearest major city, the Greeks apparently missed a syllable when writing down its name, uniformly calling it Maracanda, but the Sogdians, and the rest of history, knew it as Samarkand. And I just want to note something about the name Samarkand. In Sogdian, 
Samar means rock, and Kand means fort. So Samarkand is the rock fort. However, the Sogdians of Alexander's time tended to describe many of their fortresses as the blank rock, or the rock of whatever. So Samarkand was the fortified fortress. This was a good opportunity for the army to resupply from a proper Achaemenid supply depot in the city, rather than just plundering the countryside. And more importantly, to acquire some new war horses, since many of their mounts had died while traversing the Hindu Kush in Ericosia. It was also a good hub to formally accept some more surrenders, with the Saka, who had previously been Achaemenid vassals, sending representatives to reset their treaties and alliances with the new monarch. While in Samarkand, Alexander made an expedition out to the Aral Sea, following the course of the Oxus River in an incident that really highlights the Greeks' limited understanding of Central Asian geography. There are a couple of additional sources and fragmented texts that factor into this, but that's not really the important part. Aristotle, Alexander's teacher, knew that there were two large salt lakes deep within the Persian Empire, but he didn't know much about them. Today, we know that these were the Caspian Sea and the arid basin formerly known as the Aral Sea. At other points in Alexander's travels, the Caspian is identified as the Hyrcanian Sea. But at this point, the Alexandrian sources all uniformly say that he was at the Caspian. Except he couldn't be, because everything else they describe is entirely inaccurate. Alexander and his companions mistakenly thought the Aral was the Caspian Sea. They knew from tradition, stretching back to Herodotus, that there was a river in Scythian territory called the Tanais, which flowed into Lake Myotis, today these as the Don River and the Sea of Azov. However, when Alexander got to the Aral, thinking it was the Caspian, the local Saka told him the river north of the Oxus was called the Tanais. So the Greeks now thought that this was one continuous water system, Alexander picked out a spot for a new Alexandria to act as a border outpost and issued a warning to the Saka living beyond the Tanais not to cross. He then sent messengers back to Europe to deliver a message to the European Saka not to cross it either. In reality, he was standing on the exact same river that other Greeks would correctly identify as the Jaxartes when they ran into the same body of water further east. By the way, this is like the 10th Alexandria between new foundations and cities Alexander officially renamed. He even renamed Samarkand as another Alexandria, but that one didn't stick. According to Curtius, history almost took a dramatic turn here, with Alexander planning a steppe campaign to link both sides of his empire over the Caspian and Black Seas. This almost certainly would have been a disaster, given that they didn't seem to realize that they were much further away from the Black Sea than they thought. However, a Sogdian uprising forced the Agiad army to turn around and head east once again. Local war bands and militia along the Jaxartes and across central Sogdia staged a mass rebellion, attacking the Macedonian garrisons that had just occupied their towns in a startlingly organized assault over the whole region all at once. They were joined in this by many of the Saka, who had just pledged their fealty to Macedon. Apparently, Alexander had ordered many of the leading nobles in Sogdia to meet up at Zariaspa, the provincial capital of Hyrcania. 
Based on the plan described by Curtius, this was probably a pretty banal meeting to establish Macedonian expectations for Sogdia and Bactria and plan out an expansion into the steppe. Arian theorizes that the nobles suspected that the neutral and faraway location was a strategy to get them all in one place and execute them for assisting in the murder of Darius III. So they, namely Spitamenes, Datafernes, and Oxyartes, quietly disseminated plans for revolt across their country. And this was the first stage of their plot. Alexander summoned Spitamenes and Catanes, another Sogdian warlord, to meet him at Samarkand, not to try them for treason, but to place them in command of Macedonian armies and quell the revolt. The lord of all Asia had no idea that the Central Asian nobility had already betrayed him. However, they understandably assumed that the summons meant their betrayal had been discovered. So instead, the warlords went to Bactria, raised up Bessus's old Bactrian cavalry units, and went into open revolt in the more southern province as well. This put Alexander and his forces in an odd position. The bulk of the Macedonian army was now in Samarkand, north-central Sogdia. Alexander was still recovering from an arrow wound deep in Sogdian territory, deep in Saka territory on the northeastern coast of the Aral Sea. Fortunately, the rebels were spread out in small bands and little hill forts, so the army fanned out, with the bulk of the forces rallying with Alexander to ride along the Jaxartes to the town of Gaza. Of course, this isn't Gaza, the city in southern Palestine that guarded the eastern side of the Sinai Desert, this was a relatively small Saka town that happened to have a similar name. Alexander ordered an immediate assault. In the grand scale of cities conquered by his soldiers, Gaza was nothing but short walls and a few defenders. They surrounded the town and set up ladders to scale the walls. Little more than reinforced earthworks. As the infantry approached, Alexander's missile troops, now consisting of many Persian and Iranian recruits, unleashed a hail of javelins, arrows, and sling bullets on the defenders. It's here, at a relatively minor siege, not even the most famous battle of Gaza in Alexander's career, that we see the potential of the military machine that Alexander wanted to build. The brute force effectiveness of the Macedonian phalanx was paired with the ranged talent of the Persian army to overwhelm Gaza. Alexander ordered the men executed, granted his men the women and children as slaves, and allowed them to pillage everything of value from the town. Within the same day, they had already captured the next small village along the Jaxartes. While the infantry carried out their raiding and pillaging, the cavalry was sent to the next three towns along the river. They went to the furthest one, assaulting it quickly and burning as much as they could. The plume of smoke in the east and news that Alexander was approaching from the west spooked the inhabitants of the other two towns in the middle. Both assumed that they were next and evacuated planning to go to the other for refuge that meant that both populations were count that meant that both populations were caught out in the open when the macedonian hatairoi arrived confused and vulnerable the macedonians rode them down with impunity meanwhile Craterus, Meliager, and Perdiccas rode out from Samarkand with a detachment of the army to besiege the city of Seropolis, a city supposedly founded by and named after Cyrus the Great on the eastern Jaxartes River. Come to think of it, I don't know if I've mentioned Meliager before. Regardless, he's a Macedonian general around Alexander's age, and for now, he's just a name to keep somewhere in the back of your head. 
Hierapolis was the leading city in a coalition of towns, including Gaza, that had rebelled along the northern river. Craterus began preparing siege lines, digging a trench around the city walls, and building a stockade to house the besiegers. Out here in the open plains of the steppe, they were vulnerable to attack from any direction and couldn't take any chances during the attack. The hastily constructed wooden fort also provided cover from the Sogdian arrows while the Macedonian siege engines were being assembled. The trench prevented the Syropolitans from getting riders out of the city to call for aid. Once the other five towns were defeated, Alexander went to rendezvous with Craterus. Initially, the king intended to roll out the siege engines for a pretty routine assault. But then the Macedonians noticed an obvious weakness in Seropolis's fortifications. In the winter, snowfall in the lower elevations of the Tian Shan Mountains created enough water to fill a stream that ran through the city. But it was midsummer, and the gaps in the wall that let the stream in were just high enough to crawl under. Alexander directed Craterus to take command of most of the army and concentrate the siege engine attack on one side of the city, while the king personally led a band of infantry through the gap on the other side, or at least that's how the story goes. The plan worked, Seropolis was not densely populated, and most of the defenders were trying to repel the siege engines. Alexander and his infiltration team popped up inside the city, looked for the nearest gate, and threw it open from the inside. Rather than surrender, the Syropolitans turned around and attacked, leading to the chaos of ancient urban warfare. Craterus was wounded by an arrow in the fighting, but Alexander led his forces in a bloodbath, clearing the Syropolitan defenders from the center of town ironically sending the rest fleeing out of the city. One more rebel town had to fall, but it was tiny and fell to well-established Macedonian tactics. You'd think this would be the end of it, but no. No sooner had Alexander finished with this section of the uprising than a Saka tribe arrived from the east in the foothills of the Tian Shan. Simultaneously, reports came in from Samarkand that Spitamenes had arrived to besiege the Sogdian capital. Alexander, fearing a Saka attack in the rear, dispatched his commanders to relieve Samarkand while he oversaw construction of a new fortress in preparation for the Saka's impending assault. They built up the fortifications for almost a month with no action. Instead, the Saka just rode along the northern bank of the Jaxartes, hooting and hollering, shooting arrows in high arcs, only to plop down in the river. Alexander eventually got sick of this and prepared to cross the river for an attack, despite bad omens from his seers and warnings that this was the exact same tactic that Herodotus ascribed to the Scythians when they were fighting Darius the Great almost 200 years earlier. It was bait trying to lure Alexander into a fruitless chase across the steppe that would leave his men exhausted and vulnerable. Alexander ignored the omens, had his men construct rafts, and decided to get some actual use out of his siege engines, still parked outside the ruins of Seropolis. The catapults and oxybelles were turned toward the river and fired their payloads at the Saka horsemen, dispersing them from the riverbank as Alexander and his men crossed. Upon reaching dry land, Alexander ordered his podromoi, the light cavalry lancers, to mount up and immediately charge the Saka. This, too, was bait. The Saka, thinking this was Alexander's main assault, charged in to fight back, only to be surrounded by a wide ring of Macedonian phalanges and missile troops. Supposedly, 1,200 Saka horsemen were killed, and over 1,800 horses were captured from the herd, valuable reinforcements for Alexander's own cavalry. 150 Saka were also taken as hostages, but released without ransom after receiving a pledge from the tribe's king to make peace. That was, frankly, all Alexander needed at the moment. 
He had stayed at Seropolis for much longer than intended while Samarkand was under siege. It was time to move on. With the Battle of the Jaxartes finished, he could do that. The advance force sent to relieve Samarkand had been wiped out almost immediately, and the city fell into the Sogdian rebels. So Alexander raced to the southwest as quickly as possible, intent on confronting Spitamenes for this treason. But before he left, he had to name the fortress that had housed them while waiting to engage the Saka. This became the basis of the city of Alexandria Escate. Alexandria the Farthest, the furthest city he expected to found from Macedon. However, upon reaching the city, Alexander discovered that Spitamenes had already fled from Samarkand with his rebels. So the Macedonians took time to bury those who had fallen in the first attempt to retake the city and occupied the fortress. Craterus, who had been moving slowly with the infantry, caught up soon after Alexander and the cavalry had occupied the city. With the full force of the army once again gathered at Samarkand, they prepared for a campaign of retribution. Arian just kind of breezes through this, but Curtius describes a rolling massacre across the country. Quote, Craterus, who had been directed to follow the infantry, had now reached the king, and so that all who had rebelled might share equally in the disasters of defeat, Alexander split his forces and commanded them to raise the countryside and execute any men of fighting age. When this supposed purge of Sogdiana was complete, Alexander summoned additional troops from the garrisons that now dotted his sprawling empire and left a general named Pucolus in charge as the new satrap of Sogdia, while the king himself went to Bactra. Along the way, they captured many commanders and ringleaders in the rebellion, but the headmen, Spidamenes, Datafernes, and Oxyartes, continued to evade Alexander's wrath. Those who were captured were executed. Alexander's arrival in Bactra provides a nice lull in the military action of the story, so before transitioning over to that, here's some ads, and we will be back with one of the most famous stories of Alexander the Great. When I was applying to grad school, in just one visit to a prospective department, my roommate and I kept track of all the languages we had been told we needed to learn to study ancient Persia. The final tally came to 27 relevant languages. As somebody overwhelmed by Greek, Latin, and the need to pick up French and German, that was a bit terrifying. Reading mostly dead languages is different from speaking them, but just picking up a new language in any context is daunting. Fortunately, Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. I've had more than a few times where I wished I knew modern Persian. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert in language learning for 30 years and built up a catalog of 25 languages to learn, all available through their lifetime membership, which you can get today for 50% off. Not all of them overlap with that list from grad school, but many do. Hebrew, Persian, Latin, German, and Russian, just to name a few. Rosetta Stone has no English translations, always the part I found most frustrating, and instead focuses on long-term retention through an intuitive process of working up from simple words to full sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off. Unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today. Today.
After his purge of the Sogdian rebels, Alexander also had to deal with some political upheaval. Artabazos, formerly Artabazos II, satrap of Hellespontine Phrygia under Artaxerxes II, had been made satrap of Bactria under Alexander. However, in the winter of 329-328 BCE, he fell ill and died. Alexander replaced him as satrap with one of the Macedonian generals, Cletus the Black, as in black-haired. To celebrate his inauguration as governor, Alexander hosted a grand banquet celebrating a festival to the Greek god Dionysus in Cletus's honor at Samarkand. Well, if you know anything about Dionysus, it's probably that he is the god of wine, and as such, any good festival in that god's honor is going to feature a lot of drinking. And being a little too keen to drink in general, Alexander got absolutely plastered. So much so that he made a sacrifice to the wrong gods, honoring the Dioscuri, twin sons of Zeus, before going on an extended tirade about sons of Zeus and equating himself to the hero god Heracles. Now, it's important to understand that Cletus and Alexander had been friends and brothers in arms since they were old enough to fight together, despite Cletus being 20 years older than his king. By this time, he was becoming disillusioned. Cletus was a veteran of Philip II's wars, a real Macedonian's Macedonian warrior type. He looked on with disgust as Alexander tried to strike a delicate balance between not offending the still largely Greco-Macedonian army, nor the Iranian and Mesopotamian courtiers and population that made up most of his new empire. Likewise, he looked down on the sycophantic adoration and yes-manism of many of the others in Alexander's inner circle. However, Cletus was, at the end of the day, a proper Macedonian, meaning he too was drunk. And after Alexander compared himself to the gods, Cletus stood up. He decried this shameful behavior, the grossly exaggerated tales of Alexander's personal bravery that were already spreading as myth and legend, none of which could have happened without the other soldiers, like Cletus. Alexander, predictably, took offense at this. Alexander made a mistake as well, saying that, in comparison to Philip II's conquests, you know, the ones that Cletus helped make happen, Alexander was pretty impressive. After all, just conquering the Greeks and Thracians was pretty much nothing in comparison to the whole Persian Empire. Cletus snapped throwing insults and belittling Alexander's accomplishments to the lord of all Asia's face. Even bringing up how he, Cletus, had personally saved Alexander in the Battle of the Granicus. Quote from Arian. This is the hand, he cried, holding it out with a flourish, that saved you, Alexander, on that day. Alexander could stand no more drunken abuse from his friend. Angrily, he leapt from his seat as if to strike him, but the others held him back. Cletus continued to pour out his insulting remarks, and Alexander called for the guard. No one answered. What? Alexander cried. Have I nothing left of royalty but the name? Am I to be like Darius, dragged in chains by Bessus and his cronies? Now nobody could hold him. Springing to his feet, Alexander snatched a spear from one of the attendants and struck Cletus dead. So, yes, in a drunken screaming match, Alexander stole one of his bodyguard's spears and impaled a man who had been a friend, comrade, and unofficial uncle to him for decades. That's when the sort of still-drunk, adrenaline-fueled sobriety kicked in, and Alexander realized what he had done. Reportedly, he spent days mourning and regretting his actions. 
But at the end of the day, he was still the god king of Macedonia, lord of all Asia, and son of Zeus. Could he really do any wrong? Well, Callisthenes of Olynthus, a Greek from the Thracian coast, certainly thought so. He had been raised alongside Alexander as one of Aristotle's students in Macedonia, and he particularly loathed the fact that Alexander accepted proskinesis from his eastern subjects, the practice of prostrating oneself before royalty as well as the gods. He openly denied Alexander's supposed divine origins. At some point, another Macedonian noble called Anaxarchus openly called for a debate on proskinesis in the royal court, saying that it wasn't right for Alexander to accept an act of supplication fit only for the gods. He raised the valid point that even gods who had once been mortals did not receive such honor while they were still alive. When countered with the greatness of the Persian kings who had received proskinesis, Anaxarchus pointed out how many of them had come to gruesome deaths in the end. Alexander, again, predictably did not like this veiled threat, but he was pretty reasonable. He told the assembled courtiers that if they felt so strongly, they didn't have to do it. However, at another banquet for the royal court, the Iranian courtiers began prostrating themselves and rising to receive a ceremonial kiss from Alexander, and everyone just sort of followed protocol until Callisthenes. He did not prostrate himself before approaching the king. Alexander had been distracted chatting with Hephaestion and didn't actually notice whether Callisthenes had bowed or not. But when the heir was pointed out, Alexander refused the kiss, which was part of the Persian tradition, not the Macedonian court ceremony. Callisthenes quipped about it, but not much came in the moment. However, he soon got in touch with one of Alexander's servant boys, Hermolaus, the son of another Macedonian noble. Callisthenes convinced the boy to intervene during a royal hunt and kill a boar that had been corralled for Alexander to strike the killing blow. Think way back to the story of Megabyzus, the rebel, and Artaxerxes I on a lion hunt in episode 66. Even if the king's life was in danger, intervening on a hunt was offensive. Alexander had the boy flogged for his insolence. Callisthenes knew what would happen, and continued prodding Hermolaus, stoking his anger at the king. Soon, Hermolaus and a cabal of teenage attendants were plotting to murder Alexander. Unfortunately for them, Alexander's alcoholic streak was really taking hold by now, and the king stayed up all night, drinking continuously until dawn. So when the boys came into Alexander's tent, he caught them in the act and had them detained. They were tortured into exposing the plot and Callisthenes' role as its true organizer. He was executed, yet another noble lost to the disagreements over Alexander's ambitions in Asia. While in Samarkand, Alexander also received emissaries from the surrounding provinces, and even, according to Arian, messengers from the Scythians in Eastern Europe who had trekked all the way to Sogdia to arrange a marriage pact between Alexander and one of their own princesses. Alexander, still cagey about marrying any woman at all, turned it down, but sent them back with an offer to arrange a marriage with one of his generals. However, with tribute and administrative duties settled and a few more dead nobles, the Macedonian generals fanned out across the region with various assignments. Meliager was one of several sent to keep Bactria in line. Hephaestion went out to establish garrisons in the towns they had recaptured. Koinos was dispatched to Saka territory, where it was rumored that Spitamenes was hiding out. Alexander led the army through the rest of Sogdia to quell ongoing rebels. Spitamenes had indeed gone to the Saka, specifically the Dahai, occupying the region between the Caspian and Aral Seas. 
Arian identifies them as the Masagatai, the tribe that had killed Cyrus the Great, but this is unlikely, both because it's not clear if they even existed anymore, and because the Dahai were significantly more powerful at the time. Spitamenes led 600 Dahai horsemen on a daring raid clear across Sogdia and into Bactria, attacking the outskirts of Bactra itself. In the surprise attack, the Macedonian garrison suffered sizable losses, considering the small size of the skirmish, before Spitamenes retreated back into the steppe. Craterus took command of some of the Hittiroi and rode after Spitamenes, catching up with the Dahai and defeating them in a cavalry skirmish on the northern edge of the Karakum Desert. But Spitamenes himself was nowhere to be found, though his lieutenant, Datafernes, was killed in the fighting. After receiving reports of these battles, Koinos and his troops turned around and raced after Spitamenes themselves, catching up to him near a Dahai fortress called Gabai or Bagai, depending on the source, and engaged in a large cavalry battle on the plains. When the tide turned in the Macedonians' favor, the Bactrian rebels that had been riding with Spitamenes for the last year and a half deserted him. The Dahai fled as well, but not before plundering the Bactrian camp, and capturing Spitamenes as a payment to buy peace with the Macedonians. Specifically, they paid in blood, decapitating the rebel and sending the head to Alexander as a peace offering, which was accepted by the king during a meeting of the Macedonian High Command at Nautaka. With all this rebellion and a clear need to establish a stronger presence in the northeast, Alexander was shifting his satraps, high parks, and generals all over the administration. Some were cycled out of active duty to take over satrapies, some were given new assignments, some were fresh appointments to make up for all the recently executed nobles. However, there was still one major center of Sogdian resistance— simply known as the Sogdian Rock, ruled by the local warlord Aramadzes. The fortress was deep in the foothills of the Tian Shan, functionally on a small mountain, and packed with provisions to last for two years, according to Curtius. He also describes it as ludicrously tall, five kilometers in height from ground level, not sea level. Still, think less hill fort and more mountaintop castle. It was only accessible by a narrow footpath and otherwise surrounded by steep cliffs. Over the course of the campaign, the Macedonian army had scaled many walls, hill forts, and cliffs. So Alexander told his officers to gather up the 300 men with the most experience free climbing. Once assembled, they were each provided with hammers and a set of iron pegs to scale the mountain, along with promises of massive financial rewards for the first 12 men to reach the summit of the Sogdian Rock. While the main army dug in to assault the fringe of Sogdian defenses, these 300 soldiers began scaling the cliffs, and even with their experience, every now and then one would slip, place his peg in the wrong place, or just fall victim to a loose rock, and plummet to his death. Still, they climbed. At a certain point, trying to go back down would have been even more dangerous. 270 men reached the summit and quietly climbed around the mountain peak to plant a flag that would signal to Alexander they were inside. Alexander went up to the gates of the rock, signaling for negotiations with Aramatsis. Initially, the warlord scoffed until the Macedonian mountaineers emerged from their hiding spots at the summit. Not realizing just how few men had actually made the climb, the Sogdians assumed that their fortress had effectively fallen already, and Alexander was allowed to negotiate. His terms were simple. Unconditional surrender. Once again, Aramatsis balked but Alexander leveraged the seemingly impossible feat of scaling the mountain in the first place to threaten the complete annihilation of the Sogdian rebels. Aramadzis relented and was taken captive to be executed while other nobles in the citadel were taken as hostages. 
These nobles included the daughters of Oxyartes, one of the last major warlords still at large. Upon hearing that the rock had fallen, Oxyartes raced to the fortress in person to surrender and save his daughters from any potential retribution. But something about one of the young women struck a chord with Alexander that no other woman had ever struck before, save for maybe Barsine, probably not. This was Roxane. And though she was probably about a decade younger than the Lord of All Asia, according to Arian, it was love at first sight. This is kind of a dubious claim, given later events, but something certainly stood out. It's possible that the traditional story is all wrong, and Oxyartes arrived with a threatening army that forced Alexander's hand, or that the end result only came after the final Sogdian siege. But neither of those options make a ton of sense either. Alexander took on the whole Persian Empire without cutting deals for victory. It seems odd that he would start now. Regardless of his exact motivations, Alexander proposed a marriage pact with Oxyartes. And if you're a Sogdian warlord, with a royal marriage alliance just falling into your lap, you take it. So, Alexander and Roxane were engaged to the outrage of many of Alexander's courtiers, especially the Macedonian nobility. This marriage would provide negligible political benefits, and so far as anybody could tell, would put a half-Sogdian prince as first in line for the throne, rather than a Greek, Macedonian, or even a Persian. But Alexander was the god-king of the world, at least in his own mind, and there was nothing anybody could do to stop him. Given the immense controversy over the decision and his general refusal to make much more prestigious matches up to this point, there must have been some sort of genuine affection or attraction involved. It, I just can't imagine a different reason for it to happen. Still, they were not done. One more Sogdian warlord was still holding out in a fortress near Nautaka, threatening one of the most important cities in the province. Arian calls him Corianes, basically everyone else calls him Sisamithres. Based on some linguistic analysis not worth getting into, Corianes was probably the name of the fortress and Sisamithres the name of the warlord. He occupied a fortress surrounded by a narrow ravine that would have to be filled with dirt and debris before the Macedonian siege engines could do their work and by now it was late autumn or early winter at the end of 328 BCE, and freezing temperatures would only make excavating the necessary dirt harder. Still, the Macedonians set to work, with Alexander and his generals going in shifts to supervise the construction project. After weeks of backbreaking work, earthworks had risen high enough for Alexander's archers and slingers to attack the defenders on the walls. Realizing that the Macedonians simply would not allow him to hold out, Sisamithres offered to negotiate, and Alexander sent his soon-to-be father-in-law Oxyartes inside to convince the rebel to stand down. It worked, and the Macedonians occupied the fortress. Alexander and his entourage occupied Sisamithre's own manor within the citadel, and their servants got to work preparing all the festivities needed for a grand Macedonian wedding, at least to the degree that this far-flung province would allow. There, in the Rock of Corianes, Alexander and Roxane were wed, and for the first time in almost a decade, Macedon had a queen, albeit a Sogdian one. From there, Alexander returned once again to Bactra, while Craterus was sent out with a small army to hunt down the few remaining Sogdian rebels that were still trying to hold out. Craterus handled them easily, while Alexander and the rest of the high command sat down to hammer out a new order for the northeastern satrapies and welcome some new arrivals. Even here in Bactria, more than 5,000 kilometers from Macedon overland, Alexander 
was still receiving reinforcements. This time, Regent Antipater had sent 8,000 Greeks to reinforce Alexander. The bulk of these were mercenaries hired by Antipater after defeating the Spartan rebels in the Battle of Megalopolis back in Greece. Many of them, along with a few thousand veterans who had earned some relatively laid-back garrison duties, were entrusted to the new satrap of Bactria, another Amentus, to occupy the region and become the first wave of settlers in the colony cities that Alexander had established along the Jaxartes. Alexander then announced to the rest of his army that they would be turning south, not to head west and go home, but to go further east. Alexander was determined to invade and conquer India. Until then, if you want more information about this podcast, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. That's where you will find my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, and plenty of other things, including the support page, to financially support this project. There are all sorts of ways to do that, but most importantly, there's patreon.com slash historyofpersia. You can sign up for a monthly subscription ranging from $1 to $20, and access to things like ad-free listening, bonus episodes, and discounted merchandise. Even if you don't want to subscribe, you can also visit the show's store, either through historyofpersiapodcast.com, or historyofpersia.launchcart.com. You can also support this show for free by leaving a rating or review on your podcast app of choice. I always love to see your feedback, but even better than that, tell your friends to listen to the History of Persia. Share it on social media at History of Persia Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Threads, and just History of Persia on Twitter, and everything else that's trying to be Twitter. Thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.